have your Bibles or want to follow along in the U version, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Genesis 18, verse 16. And we're continuing along this morning in our study in the book of Genesis. And uh, just kind of want to play uh, catch up a little bit to where we are this morning. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 15 and we talked about uh, God making this covenant with Abram, you know, reminding him, hey, you are going to have a child, and not only are you going to have a child, you're going to be blessed, your descendants, you're going to have a ton of descendants, and, you know, the land that you say you haven't received, you're going to receive that land, and it's just not going to be according to your timing, according to your plan, according to the way you want it to go down, and we talked a little bit about how that's our struggle so often as human beings is we think that things ought to go according to our time, our plan, our will, and it doesn't always line up with what God has planned or what God's timing is or what his will is. But even when things don't go according to our plan, God is good. God is good. And so that was Genesis 15. And then right after this, like literally right after he tells him, hey, you're going to have a child. We see a terrible situation with Sarai, her servant Hagar, and Abram. A moment when they should have trusted God, they choose to try and jump God's timing, and Abram sleeps with Hagar, and she becomes pregnant, and Hagar starts to despise Sarai, and Sarai blames Abram for this, and Abram says, hey, she's your servant. You do with her whatever you please. Don't leave me out of it. Hagar leaves. God says, go back and submit, and you will have a son, and his offspring is going to be numerous, but he's going to have some issues and just a whole giant mess that could have been avoided. Then we come to chapter 18, and by this point, he's now going by Abraham, and Sarai is Sarah, and one day, we see at the beginning of chapter 18, three men appear before Abram, one of which, it says, is the Lord. This is referred to as a theophany, and a theophany is a manifestation of God in the Bible that's tangible to human senses. It's a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament often, but not always in human form. And the Lord and these angels, they appear before Abram and they share a meal with Abraham and Sarah and they say, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And Sarah hears this and she laughs and they hear it and they call her out on this. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. We promise you this time next year, you're going to have a son. So that's really the background to where we pick up. And in this part of chapter 18, we find out the reason for the visits. And this is a hard text. This is a hard text. It's a messy text. It's a heavy text. It is a text that has been criticized. It is a text that has been talked about over and over again. And the sad truth is it's a text that often people try to use and point to to say God is not so good. Matter of fact, there's a quote I want to read from Richard Dawkins, and I went back and forth on whether or not I should read it, but I want to read it because I think it shows what some people believe when they don't really take the time to look at God as who he is. Richard Dawkins says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And he uses a lot of big words there to try to say what he's really thinking, and that is that God is just not good. God is a moral monster. God is horrible. And the sad truth is, is a lot of people have been led astray by this man and many other atheists who believe that God is all of these things and yet never take the time to really look at the story and to see who God actually is. And it's in these hard texts that we will find some important truths this morning. One about who God is 
and went about the things that we should avoid. And so we're going to start in uh, chapter 18, verses 16 through 19. And it tells us this. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised them. And so we see kind of the reason they're here. They're looking out towards Sodom, and God has a plan. God has something in mind, and so he asks the question to himself, should I tell him what I'm about to do? He's going to become a great and powerful nation, and all nations are going to be blessed through him. And then he goes into telling the angels who are with him, here's why I will not hide it from him. And he starts to go on to talk about Abraham and bring up things that we've talked about in the past. He is going to be blessed. He's going to be blessed with numerous offspring and, and the land. And this was going to be the, or this was the covenant that was made with Abraham. And so he's going to tell him. And he tells him part of the reason why he's going to tell him is because he's going to have a task. He's going to have a task. He's going to tell his household. He's going to tell his kid and uh, continue because of that. He's going to tell his kid, and they're going to tell their kids, and they're going to tell their house, and it's going to continue down the line about here's what you need to know, righteousness and justice. And it says that I have chosen him. I have chosen him for this task. In the Hebrew, this carries a connotation of a deep and intimate fri- or friendship. There's an intimate and deep relationship between God and Abraham. We see this mentioned in James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And so here's his task, to teach everybody about righteousness and justice. That was his task. He's going to continue to share with them what is right, what is just, so that they can continue to follow the way of the Lord and bring about what God has promised. Psalm 89.14 points to these being important to God. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And what we see here is actually one of the few verses that point to God keeping his promise if Israel will stay with the Lord. It's not a works-based thing. You got to do this and this and this. He's already made that covenant, but they need to stay strong in the Lord. The nation of Israel needs to make sure they follow and do what the Lord tells them to do. And we will see throughout scripture, this becomes a little bit of a hassle for the nation of Israel. They kind of struggle with this from time to time. And so this is why he's going to tell them, Abraham's going to have that task to teach his kids and their kids and their kids to do what is right and just. Then he says this in verse 20 and 22, through 22. It says, And the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And so he tells him what his plan is going to be. I am going to go see if what is happening in Sodom is as bad as what I hear. And if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me, I will take care of it. I'm going to go and see for myself. And we talked about this a little bit last week, the fact that God's justice is always going to be according to his time and never a minute sooner than what we think it should be. It's always going to be according to his time. And so we see here that he is going to go and hear and see what is going on. And we know the truth, don't we? This is very similar language of Abel's blood crying out to God, and we know that God knows the sins of the people of Sodom. God knows what is going on. God is all-knowing. He knows all things. There is not anything outside of, you know, God's knowledge. He knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 tells us nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And you see, Sodom has gained a reputation for its wickedness. Its wickedness is well known. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. It was known to people. And what was their sins? Well, Jude 1, 7 tells us, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So sexual immorality, perversion is one of their sins, and Jude uses this as an example of this is what's going to happen to those who choose not to put their faith in the Lord. This is the punishment. But we oftentimes look at this, the sin of Sodom and we say, oh, it was just simply sexual immorality and perversion. That was the only sin in Sodom, but that's not the case. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 tells us, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So it wasn't just sexual immorality. It wasn't just uh, sexual perversion. It was arrogance. It was a lack of concern for the poor and the needy. They were haughty. They did horrible things. And so the sins of Sodom were many. And God hears this and God knows what is going on. And so he tells them this is the plan. And then in verse 23, Abraham has an opportunity to respond. He says, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, some translations here use the phrase, Abraham drew near to God. In the NIV, it says that he, you know, approached God. Well, in the Hebrew, this phrase literally means to come to court to argue a case. He's coming before God, and he's going to talk to him respectfully, but he's going to argue this case with him. He's going to question him, and he asks this question, are you really going to sweep away with the unrighteous, the righteous? And you see, I think there's two reasons Abraham asked this question. The first one is this. If you've read previously the chapters before this, you see that he has a nephew. His nephew, Lot, And his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And not just him, his wife and his daughters and his his son-in-laws, they all live in Sodom. And Lot was recognized as a righteous man. Second Peter chapter two, six through nine tells us if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. And so I think one of the main reasons he asked this question is because he's concerned about Lot. He's concerned about Lot and his family. And then I think the second reason is I think he really did have compassion on the people. Even though I'm sure he knew the state, he had heard the state, obviously, from God, this is why I'm going. But I think he had genuine concern. I think he was concerned and had compassion for the people, even though he knew what they had done. And then he continues to talk to God in verse 24 through 26. He says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And so he asked the question, man, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Are you really going to treat them the same way? Are you really going to do this? 
And I think people look at these texts in the Old Testament and these situations like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, they ask the question, how can God actually do this? How can God treat the righteous and the unrighteous the same way? Why will innocent people die because of the guilty? Why is this the case? But I think, as Cody mentioned earlier, I think he's right. It's the perception of our view of what justice is versus God's view of justice. Matter of fact, I like how Bible reference mentions this verse. It says, the problem, of course, is when we ask the question, we ask in the way Abraham does here. We assume in advance that we, not God, can define what justice and righteousness are and criticize God when he does not meet our expectations. And so the thing is, it's not about our perception and our sinful nature, by the way, on what is right and just. We have these things in our mind, what we think is righteous and just, and a lot of times they don't always, a lot of times they don't match up to what God's view of justice is, and we get mad when his view doesn't fit our view. And some people want to say that God is this moral monster, and all he wants to do is kill anyone who doesn't believe in him or believe in what he says. I don't believe this to be the case at all, and I think scripture argues against this. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Why do you choose to do this? Why do you choose to live in your evil ways? Why do you choose to do the things that you know you shouldn't be doing? In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But that is a question that we struggle with, and we understand what Abraham is asking because I think we have that same mindset, and we forget sometimes that our perception of justice does not always line up with what God says is just. And then he continues on in verses 27 through 33. By the way, before we get into that, look what God says. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. He's willing to spare, show mercy. If he can find 50 people, of course, we know that God knows what the situation is. But he, in verse 27, he says this, Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Two things stand out here to me in these verses. One, Abraham's interceding on the behalf of the people, asking over and over and over again, respectfully asking God over and over, what if there's 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? What if you can just find 10 righteous people and really, if you think about it, he's banking on Lot's family being righteous. So there's Lot, his wife, his two daughters, his two kids, or son-in-laws. Just need three other righteous people. That's it, just three other righteous people. Of course, we know how that will turn out. But he keeps asking, what if we find this many or this many or this many? And God keeps answering them. But I think there's something to this that Abraham's asking. What if you find 30, 20, 10? There's something to the fact that righteousness can impact a nation. If we're righteous, it can impact a nation. It says in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. If we were a righteous nation, look at what, can, what could happen. And that's what, he's saying, or what it's saying in Proverbs, a, a righteous nation, a righteousness can exalt a nation. But then the second thing that stands out to me is this, God allowing him to keep asking him and the fact that he keeps saying, okay, all right, if you can find 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. 
Now here's the thing. God, again, already knows what the result's going to be. The request is going to end up being denied. But here's the thing. That does not mean that we stop praying. That does not mean that we stop asking God because the truth is sometimes God is going to hear our prayer and our prayer is going to be denied. Our prayers aren't always going to be answered the way we want them to be, but that does not mean we stop asking the Lord things in prayer because not if he, cause even if he doesn't always answer it the way we think he should, doesn't mean he's not going to bring something out of it. And we'll talk about that more here in just a little bit. And now we get in to the event, the big event of Genesis chapter 19. And so we know what's happening. We know where the angels are heading. And in verse nine, or chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, it tells us this. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And so we see here the angels appear in the city during the evening. It doesn't tell us if they, they walked all the way there. Did they, you know, transport themselves to the city? It doesn't tell us. But we see them arriving at the city gate. And when they get to the city gate, guess who they find? They find Lot. Lot is sitting at the city gate. And this is a very important thing to understand, that Lot is sitting at the gateway because to sit at the gate was a position of judge. It was a position of authority. Authority would sit at the gates in, in public places. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 19 tells us, as someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. It was a place of judgment, and it was a place where legal and business transactions would take place. An example of this comes a little bit later in Genesis 23, 17 through 18. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. It was a place where the judge would sit and it would be a place for legal and business transactions. And Lot here is in a position where he can try and screen out the wickedness that is coming into his town. The problem is, as he's screening the wickedness coming into his town, he's not paying attention to the wickedness inside the town. Although it does say in Peter that he was distressed by the things that he had seen. But he's in a position here where he's an authority, a judge. And I think we need to notice something else here about Lot. Lot is beginning to let himself draw near to a place that is filled with sin. I mean, let's look back at how Lot got here. In Genesis 13, 10 through 11, it says, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. But in the very next verse, in verse 12, it says, Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. And so he's living on the outside near Sodom. But then when we get to Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, it says they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions and or his possession since he was living in Sodom. He went from living outside of Sodom, now he is living in the city, and now we find him in a position of authority in this town. And again, I go back to Bible Ref because I think they make a really good point here. It says, this speaks volumes about Lot's relationship to the culture he chose to live in. Those who openly challenged the sins of Sodom would not have been respected enough to sit at the city gates. And so, because of where he's sitting, he wasn't speaking up about what he was seeing. If he was challenging them, then it would have been likely that they said, we don't want somebody to challenge, which we will see here in just a bit, what happens when he challenges the people. This shows that he wasn't speaking up or saying anything. But we do see 
that he follows the culture norms that he's supposed to. The culture of that day would require that people be hospitable to his guests, and that's what Lot does when they come in. He bows before them, and then he invites them to stay in his house. Come, stay in the house, and you can leave in the morning, but they decide to stay in the city square. Now, at this time, they didn't have hotels and uh, fancy places to stay, and so it wasn't uncommon for travelers to sleep out in the open in the public square. But Lot convinces them to stay with him, and I think part of the reason why he pushes so strongly is because he fears for the safety of his guests. He fears for what's going to happen to them if they stay out in the city square. And we'll come to see that he had a right to be that way, because we come to verse 4, and verse 4 is where things start to go off the rails a little bit. This is what it says. It says... uh, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. My goodness, what a lot of stuff to cover right here. Things really do start to go off the rails here. He has these two angels in his house, these two guests. And all of a sudden, all the people from all around the city of Sodom, both young and old, all the males, come and they call out to Lot, where are the men who came here tonight? Bring them out because we want to have sex with them. They want to rape these men. Now, this is horrible. And Gordon Winham brings up a good point. He says, ancient societies often condoned homosexuality between consenting adults, but rape, especially of guests, was always regarded as wrong. And we see here the perverse nature, just how perverse these people are. These men see them, and they want them, and they want to rape them. This is horrible, but it gets even worse than this, this time on the part of Lot. And Lot says, hey... Here, first of all, notice what he says here. He says, no, my friends. No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. I have these two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out and you can do what you want with them. We're not told in scripture why Lot does this, why Lot makes this offer. There's suggestions thrown out. Maybe it was just sheer desperation. He had to do something, and he had to do it quick, and this was the first thing that could come to his mind. He had to protect his guests. That was part of being hospitable. And so here you go. uh, Take them. Maybe it was shock therapy to do something so, man, who would do that? Who would offer up their daughters? Maybe he thought maybe by offering them it would shock them so much that I would offer them that they would just say, never mind. Maybe it was because they were pledged to be married to two Sodom men, and maybe they would not harm the women because they were pledged to men in Sodom. Maybe Lot simply thought that this was the lesser of two evils. It doesn't tell us. But here's the truth. There's no way to spin this that looks good on the part of Lot. What he does is he tries to use sin to cover sin. And it's horrible what he suggests. There's no way to spin it that makes him look good. But then, how quickly things turn. He says, no, don't, don't do this, and you shouldn't do this. And then it, they get, you know, angry with him. He starts to gain the ire of the people. He was a foreigner, and now he's trying to tell them what is right and what is wrong. He's trying to tell them what they can and cannot do. So they start moving towards him, threatening to do worse to him than what they would do to the angels. They were already planning to rape these men. Imagine worse for Lot. Here's the truth. And it's a truth that we can, we need to remember. To stand against sin, to stand against what's wrong, 
It's going to draw the ire of some people who do not want to believe and do not want to be told what they should or should not do. It's a truth. Sometimes we're going to tell people what is right, what is wrong, what is sin, what is not, and they are not going to want to hear what it is that we have to say. And sometimes they may turn around and leave us being angry because we tried to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. Don't be surprised by this. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 tells us, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so this whole horrible ordeal just displays the problem with Sodom. And so here's what happens next in verse 10 through 14. It says, but the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. And so some say that Lot knew that these were angels who were sent to Sodom from the get-go. Some believe that he didn't know until this moment. Either way, if he didn't know, he does now know that these men are angels because of the supernatural display to blind the people and keep them from getting to the door. They cannot find the door because they have been struck with blindness. And so they tell him, do you have anybody around here, any sons-in-laws, daughters, whatever, go tell anybody in the city who belongs to you they need to get out of here because something is about to happen. This place is going to be destroyed. And so what does Lot do? He goes out and he tells his son-in-laws. And here's something that I never, ever thought about until this week when I read something about it. Who did it say went to the house? All the men outside of Sodom, the surrounding towns inside Sodom, all men, young and old. It's very likely that his two son-in-laws here were part of the mob crying out for this or these men. It's possible that they, it doesn't tell us that they were in the house. As a matter of fact, it says that Lot went out to talk to them. And so it's possible that these son-in-laws who were pledged to his daughters were part of this mob. And we know that he, Lot was the only righteous man in the city. It shows that whoever was to marry his daughters were not going to be righteous. And yet Lot still urges them to go. And of course they choose to ignore him thinking he's just joking with them. It would make sense if he was, or if they were part of this mob, then they were probably possibly blinded and how crazy is it that they could be blinded and still believe that lot is joking with them it just shows that some even though with all the miracles around them they will choose not to believe and so he goes and he tells them and they think he's joking so what happens next in verses 15 through 17 it tells us It says, with the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. The Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. And so the angels urged Lot, get out of here. Take your wife or two daughters, get out of here. You're going to be swept away with the city when it is punished. And look look what happens with Lot. It says, when he hesitated, he hesitated. He hesitated to turn and go. He hesitated to leave. He hesitated Think about this for a second. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 12 and 16, we see Lot as a prisoner of war. And then what does he do? He goes back to Sodom. A mob threatens him and his family for not allowing them to rape his guest. 
And what does he do? He hesitates. The angel tell him what is going on, and what does he do? He hesitates. He's become attached to the city, to his way of living, to his stuff, to his possession, to the things that he had in Sodom. And before we judge, think about this for a second. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? Sometimes we just hesitate. And God has offered us something better than anything in this world. He's offered us salvation through his son. It doesn't get any better than this. And he tells us this is how you should live. You should do these things and live a righteous life. And yet, how often do we hesitate to look back on the things that we've had in our past life, to look back at the things that are sinful that we, could, or we should give up, and yet those things still call out to us, those things still cry out to us, and we hesitate for a minute to think, man, I used to be able to do this, but now i got to live by these rules and these things that God tells me to live by. I remember before when I could do whatever I want, and we hesitate. Just like Lot. And he hesitates, and what do they do? They drag him out of the city, and when they tell him to flee to the mountains because the plains will be swept away, he tells him, do not look back, just go, go. Don't waste your time, don't look back, just get out of here. And we see in verse 18, it says, But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zoar. And so he says, I, I can't make it to the mountains. I'll never make it there in time, and I'll be destroyed. Why don't you just send me to this, this little town over here? It's very small. Look, it's small. It's small. It's, it's very small. A matter of fact, the name of the town Zoar, it gets its meaning from the phrase to be small or a little one. It is small. Just send me there. Man, all he had to do is just listen to what they told him. Just go to the mountains. You'll make it. No, oh, I can't make it. Just send me over here. And so they're gracious, and they allow that, but they tell him, hurry up, because I can't do anything. We can't do anything until you get there. And so we continue in verse 23. In verse 23, it says, by the time, the, by the time Lot reaches Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And so we see here a couple of things. One, Lot, his wife, all this fire has been rained down on the city. Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed just as the Lord said it would be. And all, she, all, hell, all Lot's wife had to do was just obey. Don't look back. Just go. Go. And she turns and looks back. And she pays the price for it by turning into a pillar of salt. Some believe, you can actually Google it, some believe that this pillar is still standing today. You can actually see a pillar where they believe Sodom was, where you can see this pillar that they believe could be his Lot's wife. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's interesting. But here's the thing I think we need to think about with Lot's wife. She's looking back to see what she's losing. She's looking back to see what it is she's losing, what she's given up. She was from Sodom. He married a Sodom woman. She's looking back, seeing what she was losing, what she was giving up, the life that she was losing. I think this is why Jesus refers to her in Luke 17. In Luke 17, 31 through 33, on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And just like we mentioned earlier, too often we want to look back on what the world offered us instead of being thankful for what God has given us. We want to look back on the things that we feel like we're given up instead of looking forward to what God has blessed us with. And Lot's wife looked back at what she was losing, and because of that, she lost. And then we read about Abraham. Abraham looks down and he sees the destruction, the smoke, the dense smoke rising from the land. And when God destroyed the cities, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe. You see, even though God you know, denied his request to spare the city, he spares Lot. He spares Lot's daughters. And it's because of his servant Abraham. I think God knew what he was asking for when he was making his, peti- or his petition before God. Man, please spare Lot, his family, any righteous that are there. And he spares Lot and his daughters. So what is it that we need to learn from this? I said earlier that there's a couple of things that we need to remember about this, especially when people want to say that God is some moral monster. Here's the thing I think we need to remember. First thing is this, God is just. God is just. Psalm 33 verse 5 tells us the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. He is a God who is just. He loves justice. And we think about justice a lot, don't we? You hear it all over the TV, you hear it on the radio, you hear it in podcasts, you read about it. Justice, 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 justice. We have a big thing about justice. We want justice. And why do we think about justice so much? Well, I think it's because it's in our nature, because God is just. Because God is just. And he requires righteousness and justice from us. It says in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He is just. And you might be thinking, how is God just? When you think of justice today, how is God just? Well, for starters, he does not stand for the mistreatment of others. Zechariah 7.10 tells us, Do not oppose the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Another thing about God's justice, God will execute his justice against those who oppress him. I hate to say it, but it is true. If you choose to stand against God, someday you will face the justice of that. You will face the penalty for that. Romans 12, 19 tells us, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. But you see, God is just in the way that he remembers the work of his people, and God is just in the consequences of our sins. Hebrews 6.10 tells us, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Colossians 3.25 reminds us, though, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Here's the thing. Sometimes we don't understand his justice and the way he enacts it. We are sinful people in a sinful nature, and so sometimes our view of what is right and just does not always match God's, but that does not mean that he is not right and just because he is just in everything that he does and everything he decides to do, he is just. And so that's the first thing we need to remember, that he is just, but what's the other thing? It's this. We need to remember to not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the world. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's look at Lot. Let's look at Lot. He may have been righteous and distressed by the things that he saw in Sodom, but we also see him starting to conform a little bit. 
Look at this. He moved into a sinful city, then went back after he was a prisoner of war. He married a woman from Sodom, became an important citizen of Sodom, called them friends, offered up his daughters who were pledged to men who were not righteous, hesitated to leave. All of these things are examples of a man who was starting to slowly conform to the things around him. And I think Tommy Clayton uh, is pretty bold when he says, if God hadn't told us Lot was righteous, it would be very difficult to identify him as a citizen of God's kingdom. You see, he was a righteous man, but he was starting to do things that were going, that, that he knew he shouldn't have been doing. No, my friends, moving into the city, taking a position at the gate. We see the same problem play out in the New Testament with the religious leaders. They were power-hungry and greedy and cared more for themselves than other people. They let their hearts and minds become corrupted. You see, we cannot conform to the patterns of this world. Instead, we need to have a renewed mind. How do we do that? We read his word. We pray to him. We speak with him. We listen to him. We listen to his word. We do what it says. That's how we renew our minds, how we focus on him. But I think there's a couple of things that we can do to make sure that we don't conform to this world. And I think one of those things is we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our hearts so that we don't let it become corrupted by, this, by sin. Here's the thing. A lot of people say that Sodom was the reason for all these things that happened. Sodom was destroyed because it was a town that was filled with wickedness. But here's the thing. It wasn't the city. It was the people in the city. The people inside the city had a problem with sin. A, they were wicked. They were evil in the things that they did. It wasn't Sodom. It was the people inside of Sodom. You know, I think of places like Las Vegas, and their motto is, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and we think of Vegas is corrupt, or New York City is corrupt, or blah, blah, blah. We come up with these different places, and we say, they are corrupt. Here's the deal. It's not the places, it's the people. It's the hearts of the people. We can be sinful right where we are in Milwaukee. It's an issue of the heart. And we need to guard our hearts so that sin does not corrupt our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Luke 6.45 says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings out evil things from the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so we need to guard our hearts. But here's the other thing. We need to watch where we walk. We need to watch where we walk. Proverbs 4.14 says, Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of the darkness, but rather expose them. Here's the thing. We live in the world. We live in the world, and the world is a sinful place. We live in the world, and there are things in this world. We will work with people who do not believe what we believe, who live different lifestyles. There will be people that we are neighbors with who will live different lifestyles. There are people around us who will choose to live a different lifestyle than us. We live in the world, but here's the thing. We are not of this world. We are to live differently than the world, and so to do that, we need to watch where we walk. Man, look at Lot. He put himself into a position where he was starting to let the culture impact him, let it change him. He wasn't speaking up about what he knew was wrong. And the first time he does it, look what happens. He was starting to conform to the things around him. And when he started to conform to the things around him, he stopped exposing the things around him. Instead, he allowed it. He just kind of didn't say anything about it. He was just kind of there. And I know what you're thinking. I got to work with people who don't agree. I, I live around people. I, I don't, how in the world am I supposed to, to not be around them? It doesn't make any sense. Now you see, we're going to be around people and we're called to love people. We're called to love them. We're called to love them because, you know, God tells us to do that thing. We are to love the people around us. But here's the thing, we do not partake in the things of this world. We may be around them, but that does not mean we have to do what they do. That does not mean we have to live the way they live. We can choose to live differently. And here's the thing. I want to just say it. Too many churches are starting to fall victim to this. Too many people around the world, too many people in the church are falling victim to this. And we are starting to be conformed to the thoughts and the patterns of the world around us. And we cannot do that. 
We need to take the example of Lot to heart, and we need to make sure that we are not conforming to the things around us. We need to expose the things around us, not partake in the things around us. Church, we cannot get caught up in the things of this world. We cannot get caught up in the things that will keep us from focusing on him. We cannot be conformed to the thoughts and ideas of this world. Now, here's the thing. I know we're going to sin. We're going to fall short. Scripture tells us that we fall short. And so let's talk about justice again. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as the worship team comes up, let's talk about justice again. God is just. God is just. But not only is he just, he is also merciful. And here's the good news. Justice has been satisfied. Justice has been satisfied. And how has it been satisfied? Justice has been satisfied through his son, Jesus Christ. Justice has been satisfied because God has sent his son into this world. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justice was satisfied through his son, but it wasn't just through his son coming into this world. No, our debt was paid on the cross. Our debt was paid on the cross. First Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God is just, but guess what? Our, just, our justice has been satisfied the debt has been paid the wrath of sodom poured out on his son for us and here's the good news justice says we get what we deserve and thankfully god is not just just he's also merciful because he sent his son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and maybe you're here this morning and you've never received that gift of salvation eternal life that can only come through jesus if that's the case, on the connect cards in the chairs around you, you can put that on there. I'd love to talk with you. If you want to come talk to me this morning, I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking at the story of Lot and you're thinking, man, I think I've started to let myself get caught up in the things of this world, the things that this world says are important, the thoughts, the, the mindset of this world. I've started to get swept up into it. And I find myself starting to live more like the world around me than the life that Christ calls me to live. And if that's the case this morning, right, 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 you can pray. Give those things to God. Lay those things at his feet. Because we're not called to live like the world. We are called to live for him, to live like Christ, to do the things that Christ would do, to live a life not filled with the things of this world, but of him. And so if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make or you need some spend, spend some time praying, please do so as we stand and we sing.